Hermeneutics. We have finished the eight principles, and we are now examining three important topics. Lord willing, we will do all three topics this evening. And the first one is on page 60. Page 60, different categories of literature. Page 60, different categories of literature. And if you are listening to this online and you would like to get the book, I'd be glad to email you a PDF if you will just let me know in the comments or by email. Different categories of literature. Tonight we're going to examine the kinds of writings that are in the Bible. The Bible contains different forms of literature. Those forms are called genre. Genre is a French word meaning kind or category. It's spelled G-E-N-R-E, but we pronounce it genre. So G-E-N-R-E. You want to say it if you read English, you want to say genre, but it's genre. And tonight we're going to examine the different categories of the genres of scripture, the literary kinds that we have in the Bible. The reason we want to examine these is to help us observe the fish more carefully and to help us make decisions on how to preach, to make us help decisions on how to read. Because if you are dealing with someone, you may want to use history to make the lesson painless. Whereas if you use an epistle, it might be very blunt and direct. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, People who go on in these kinds of sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, it says, Sanctification is to abstain from fornication. But if you just read the Old Testament history, you can see those same kinds of lessons less painfully. Because they're not as direct. They're delivered through a story. Those are some of the powers, or at least the open door, the beginning of the power of genre. And the first genre that we're going to discuss is epistles. Epistles. 21 of the books of the New Testament are epistles. Perhaps you could say 23 if you count the books of Acts and Luke. Are Acts and Luke epistles? I don't think so because they mainly deal with history. But if you count Acts and Luke as epistles, then there are 23 of the books of the New Testament that are epistles or letters. And these letters are probably the clearest expression of Christian teaching in the Bible. I'm sorry. This place. Epistles are usually shorter than narratives or prophecies because prophecies are the combined writings of a man throughout his entire life. An epistle is one letter written usually for a specific singular reason. So if you compare all of Paul's epistles to the book of Isaiah, you'd have a better comparison. Isaiah, the entire book of Isaiah is like or could be called The epistles of Isaiah, all those individual revelations or visions or what the scholars call them oracles, those individual revelations throughout the long 40, 50 year ministry of Isaiah. Same thing with Jeremiah. Jeremiah has many different visions that are recorded in his prophecy. It would be as if Jeremiah is a collection of all those epistles So right here, which is by, by the way, why you can preach on a section of the prophetic literature without preaching on the whole book and still accurately preach an entire message. You may take, for example, Jeremiah 46 to 52 and just preach the last seven chapters of the book and still be preaching a complete unit, a complete message that is stored by itself. 
Those are some of the things that we want to study as we examine genre. Number one, epistles. These are the letters of the Apostle Paul, James, Peter, John, Jude, and then the author of the letter of Hebrews, which it seems to me like it was Paul. And many people in history felt it to be Paul. But these days there is so much debate about who wrote it. And I don't think it matters at all. So the letter to the Hebrews as well. Epistles are usually shorter than prophecies. And New Testament epistles are written for one of two reasons. And these reasons are taken from Richard Longenecker, which I found in Johnson's, Elliot Johnson's excellent, excellent expository hermeneutics. One of two reasons that you'll find epistles written. This is page 60, letter C, number one. Pastoral letters seek to answer questions or give counsel. Like 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and 1st and 2nd Timothy. Every one of those letters, all the 1st and 2nds that Paul wrote, are there because he was trying to answer questions or give counsel. Or number two, epistles are written as essays to discuss a particular topic chosen by the speaker, but not necessarily in response to an issue. Like Romans. Uh, We dealt with this the other week when we talked about occasional letters. Romans is not an occasional letter. That is, Paul did not write the letter to the Romans because of some big problem in the Roman church or because of some other issue. Romans is an essay. Paul heard about the church in Rome and thought, I want to make sure they understand justification and sanctification and election and service to God. And so he wrote the letter. It's not because he had heard something that was going on in the church, but he wanted to address that issue. Same thing is true with Ephesians or Hebrews or James. In each of those cases, the author, Paul, said, uh, or James, said, I want to deal with this. And that teaches us, too, as pastors. Sometimes you need to preach a sermon because you are wise and discerning, and you look at the people and think, They haven't asked me, but I can tell that they need that. And sometimes you need to say, you know, we're going to preach for a month on the questions you've been asking me. I once heard Greg Barkman preach a series through the book of Romans. And when he got to Romans 9, he said, if you have questions on the doctrine of election, then you can collect your questions and give them to me. And I'll answer them next Sunday night. But there were so many questions that he spent two or three or maybe four Sunday nights at about an hour each Sunday night answering these questions. That's biblical. That's right what the Apostle Paul was doing in some of these epistles. So as pastors, there needs to be wisdom in our selection of what texts to bring forward. Let me make a comment here. Going even a little deeper and just giving you a practical advice on choosing what to preach. Be an active, thoughtful, wise preacher. Be a doctor examining your patient when you preach. One man that I heard many years ago who is not an expository preacher, and he is not a model of preaching. He was mocking expository preaching, and he's wrong for that, of course. And by expository, I mean consecutive preaching through a book of the Bible. But he did say one thing that might, might fit even 10% here. And if there's 10% good that a fool says, take it. He said, you preachers who preach one sermon after another, going the whole way through the book of Corinthians, for example, what kind of doctor would you make? Are you going to walk into the chemist's shop and your patient is sick and you say, well, here's the very first, here's the very first bottle of pills on the shelf. Just take that. Oh, that didn't fix it? Okay, here's the second bottle of pills on the shelf. Take that. And are you just going to work through every bottle of pills? Or do you say, oh, well, this patient's struggling with this problem. I'm going to go and take that particular bottle off. So uh, as an argument against preaching consecutively through the Bible, it's ridiculous. But as a reminder for pastors, 
There are many times in life when you need to say to yourself, it looks like I have a doubter who comes to hear me every Sunday. Or it looks like I have worldlings who come to hear me every Sunday. I'm going to pause my series and I'm going to open up the book of 1 John to help them. And then maybe next week I'm going to open up John chapter 6. And maybe next week I'm going to open up Revelation 22 to help them. And then we'll get back to our series. That is something like what the epistles did. Of course, there's a foolish way to do that. You can do it in a way that draws attention to the person that you're, you're attempting to help or the people you're attempting to help. And you need to use wisdom and grace. But that doesn't discount the need for pastors to be doctors and to be examining their people. Epistles call for word studies more than any other literature. Underline that in letter D. Epistles need word studies. So at Reformation Day, I preached on justification by faith. Three words. Three words, or one word you could say, just justification. I preached just on that word for 45 minutes or so. Because epistles use those heavy theological terms more so than other literature. In general, in the historical books, there's not the same level of precise wording used. So in John 6 verse 44, when Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, unless the Father draws him. No man can come to me unless the Father draws him. Now, that word draw is not a technical term. It's just a simple word. It means to be pulled. And if you were to develop an entire sermon on that word, there's probably not, not a lot of background to that word. Now, there's many applications. You could preach a whole sermon on draw. How does the Lord draw? What does it mean? How does he do it? How can you tell if you're being drawn? But there's not a lot of background information that would shed light on the word draw. Compare that with the word redeem. In Ephesians 1 verse 7. You could do background studies on the word redeem from Ephesians and show from the book of Exodus. You could preach three sermons on one word redeem from the book of Exodus. How God redeemed his people. And then you could go and preach on redemption again from the kings. And then again from the prophets. And you haven't even gotten to the New Testament yet. Then you could preach another sermon right from Ephesians 1. Or what about the word atone? Atonement. Do you want to close these? Yeah, close. Lock those up. Again, the word atonement is another example. We could preach a series of sermons on the word atone. Or propitiation. Or election. Or foreknowledge. These are all words used in the epistles that are full of background information. And by background information, you know what, let's just do this right here. Because we're in this section... Make a little note, uh, maybe in the margins or wherever you can find space for word studies. There is an appendix at the back of your book on word studies. So you can turn there if you like. What page is it, Lloyd? You find the page? Yeah, page 74 and 75. There's a sample for word studies. And as you can see in that sample, when you're doing a word study, and that is the epistles, because we're talking about the genre of epistles, and epistles commonly have words that have a a great amount of background information, like some of those words I just listed. Propitiation, atonement, election, redemption, justification, salvation, sanctification... Every one of those words could be studied in depth. Inspiration, purification, anointing, union with Christ. All of those words, terms, or ideas could be studied at length. And in a word study on page 74, let's just give a few points here. 
When, when you do a word study, what you would like to do first is look at the usage. The most important part of a word study is this. Usage. How does the Bible use the word? What is not the most important thing is what does the dictionary say? If someone preaches a sermon based on one word or spends, let's say, 10, 15 minutes in a sermon on one word because they did a word study of that word, if a large part of their teaching is based off of the dictionary definition, it may be, or it probably is, that they did not study properly. Did you follow that? When you want to know what a word means, do not go in the Bible. If you want to know what a word in the Bible means, do not go to the dictionary. Or if you go to it, do not take your heart with you when you go. So that when you see the word in the dictionary, you say, well, that must be what it means. Go and look in the dictionary, but don't take your heart with you so that when you're done looking at the dictionary, you say, now I know. No, you don't know at all. You barely even opened the door. Go to the what? The usage in the Bible. So if you're studying the word redeem, the simplest way to do is search for all the English words redeem, redeemed, redemption. The better way, if you have computer software or if you know the original languages, search for the Greek word. Do you know how to search for the Greek word on computer software? Dakota? Alpheus? Caleb? Do you guys? You guys? When, when you are searching, search for the English word. It's better if you can search for the Greek word if you know how to do that on a computer program or if you've learned the original languages. But the important thing is what? Look at the way the Bible actually uses the word. Do not say to yourself, well, I have a book here called a dictionary. And therefore, I know. Now, I'm not telling you don't use the dictionary. I use the dictionary Sunday night. If you heard my sermon on, on the fruit of the Spirit is patience, I used the dictionary. But there's two differences. Number one, I used the Webster's Dictionary from 1828. And that man knew Greek and Hebrew. And sometimes his definitions are like Bible expositions as his definition of patience was. So, I'm sorry, it's Noah Webster, not Daniel Webster. Uh, I use Noah Webster's definite dictionary from 200 years ago, so that's a little bit different. And secondly, my sermon was not built off of Noah Webster's definition. My sermon, as I told you from the very introduction, was built off of the 12 times it was used. And do you remember what's the first thing we did? We opened right up to 2 Corinthians 6, and we looked at other ways the word patience was used. So we went right and said, okay, Paul is using the word patience in Galatians, 6, uh, Galatians 5 verse 22. How does Paul use it in other places? And then how does Luke use it? How does James use it? And we went and looked at all of those things. What we were doing Sunday night was simply following the usage. And you can find the usage in three ways. I've already told you two of them. Number one, I'm just reviewing here. You can find the usage by looking in an English concordance. An English concordance. Or if you have a computer program, you just type the word in, redeem or redeemed or redemption. By the way, in most computer programs, if you type in the beginning of a word and then an asterisk, that's the star. If you type in, for example, for redeem, if you type in R-E-D-E, you follow that? Just those four letters, R-E-D-E, and then put a star after it. Every time a form of that word is going to come up, it's going to give you redeem, redeemed, redemption. All of those words will come up, okay? So if you're searching on the computer or if you're searching on BibleGateway.com or one of these Bible websites, you put an R-E-D-E asterisk, 
and all of the forms will come up. So you can do that in English. That's the first option for how to search the usage. The second option is if you can, in your Bible program, click on the Greek and then tell it to search the Greek word. Or if you know Greek, then you can type in the Greek word. And then it will give you just that Greek word. The third option is read your Bible carefully and start marking the times that key words are used in other places. I am already doing that with different terms that mean the same thing. So, for example, I'll just give you an example. On the word remember, I am now making a chain throughout my Bible on the word or idea of remember. What are some other words for remember that are not the word remember that I would have to need in order to have all the Bible's teaching on remember? Recall? Forget. Because many, many times the Bible says do not And that's the same thing as what? It's the same thing as remember. So I am already making a chain through the Bible. I've done that on the word humility. Humility was amazingly difficult. When I took my computer and said, okay, Mr. Computer, give me every instance of the word humility. Guess what happened? I found very few occurrences. I think it was about 50. But then when I searched the Greek word, I came up with about 100. When I search the Hebrew word, I come up with another hundred or so. But when I actually read the Bible looking for every example of humility, so far, and I'm still going, I'm over 270. Because there are many, many times that humility is mentioned, but instead of saying humility, what are some other words that it might say? Do not be proud. Yeah, or what else? He was low before God. What about Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6? He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Then I said, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It never uses the word humility. Is there humility in that passage? Oh, there is. But the word isn't there. So in my list, I put that down. So if you want to do a proper word study, you can talk to your computer, but the best way to do it is read your Bible carefully. And I'll close with this. I'll close this section with this. My wife read Matthew Henry's A Quest for Meekness and Quietness of Spirit. Excellent book. It's about 170 pages. A Quest for Meekness and Quietness of Spirit. And what she told me at the end shocked me. This was probably seven, eight years ago, maybe more, maybe 10 years ago. She read the book from cover to cover very carefully, and she said, it was as if Matthew Henry read the whole Bible from cover to cover, just looking for gentleness. And then when he read the whole Bible, then he said, now I'll write my book. And I thought, well, that makes pretty good sense. So a few years ago, I started reading the Bible looking for humility. And I would encourage you. Now I think Caleb is reading the Bible looking for a theme as well. When you really want to do a word study, it will be a solid word study. If you say, I'm going to read through the Bible and mark with an F every time I see faith. Or mark some other term or idea that you're studying. Glory. Love, repentance, holiness, self-denial, Christ. Sure, that'll be a lot. Read the whole Bible and look for one of those themes. That's the third way to, to get the information for doing a word study. So when you do a word study, you'll want to look at the usage. Now you can see on page 74, there's other, other tools in here. I noticed Greek words. And of course, that would be Hebrew words as well if it's in the Old Testament. The dictionary definitions, the frequency. Frequency means how many times it's used. And you can see a sample list of those in that place. But notice on page 75, this is a a key element of logic. 
Make sure that you look for synonyms. What is a synonym? A word that has what? The same meaning. Look for synonyms. And that's really a logical exercise. Because when you go into your Bible and you you look for the word repentance, now when you read... Now when you read the story of Manasseh, you're going to have to look through the story of Manasseh and see if you see repentance in there, but the word's not there. The word's not there, and you're going to have to use logic to say, do I see the idea? And bad preachers quickly grab other passages without comparing them. Good preachers are commonly frightened concerned, timid to make comparisons too quickly because they don't want to be wrong. You're so concerned about eisegesis, and that's a good fear, but practice that, finding synonyms. And then finally, as you'll notice there, make observations from the usage. I have done this so many times over. It has been such a help to me. Once you've looked at all the usages of a word, look for Uh, The observations that you can make from that. And that's where you're going to get your definition. So when we preached on humility this year, does anyone remember the definition of humility? To be low before God. God. And you can never say, you can never say this. Oh, Seth, you're so clever to come up with that definition. You can't say that because what I did was take Only the observations from those 270 examples. And I wrote them all on a sheet. And it was many, many pages. And then I looked and looked and looked. I looked my eyes away. And if you remember that first sermon on humility, I took those 270 and I put them all in categories. Every one of those verses I put in different categories. I think it was 15 categories of verses on humility. And at the end, from those 15 categories, we said, these 15 categories are saying two main ideas over and over and over. You've got to go down in front of God. So what else is that's got to be low before God? I wasn't trying to. Part of me would have liked to have had a definition that was more punchy. But that's what the usage told me. So I know for sure I'm giving you exegesis. I am giving you purely God's word because I just read all the time God spoke about it and compared them all. When you do a word study, you should be able to do that. Thankfully, most of the words that you're going to look up will not have 270 usages in the Bible. Although if you want to search love and grace and faith, you'll find that. But if you search for redeem, you're going to have something like 30 or 40 If you search for propitiation, you only have four. If you search for justification, you're going to have 20, 30, 40. These are still, these usages are still very helpful. Read those 30 verses and then think about it for a while and and let the water boil until you can say, that is exactly what this word means. Nothing more, nothing less. It's just this. And if someone says to you, oh, you think you're so clever, you can say, whoa. It really doesn't matter what I think. I looked at all the usage. I saw all of the ways that the Holy Spirit used this. This is the way he uses the word, not me. I might use it a different way. You might use it a different way. But the Holy Spirit chose to use this word this way these 17 times. And if he uses it that way 17 times, I'm going to use it that way. So the usage is the key. And from that, we get our our definition. Let's go back in our notes to page 60. And let's look at narratives. The narratives of the Bible include world history like Genesis, Jewish history like the Old Testament, church history like Acts, and the stories from Jesus' life like the four Gospels. So there is a lot in the Bible is filled with history. It makes up 40% of the Bible. And we can look at it three different ways. Again, I got this from Gordon Fee. You can look at history narrative as the great story of redemption. 
Or you can look at it as stories of Israel and the church. That's viewing it well. Or you can look at it as individual stories like Tamar, Jonah, Phineas. Did you notice what happened in those three categories? What did I do with those three categories? What's category number one? The grand redemption story. What do I mean with that? I mean the entire Bible. I can look at the book of Joshua and ask myself, what is Joshua doing in the whole Bible? That's category number one. Or I can remember it as stories of Israel and the church. That's breaking it up into Old Testament or New Testament. I can ask myself this question. What is Joshua doing in the Old Testament? Or my third category is, I can say, what is Joshua doing as a man? Does that make sense? Do you follow that? So you could preach three sermons on the book of Joshua. Sermon number one, Joshua chapter 1 to 24. How many chapters are there in the book of Joshua? 24. So sermon number one could be this. What does Joshua mean in God's whole plan? Then the very next Sunday, you could preach a different sermon called, What Does Joshua Mean in the History of the Jewish People? And it could be a different sermon that does not contradict last week's sermon, but still gives added and interesting information and a powerful lesson. And then you could say number three, What Does Joshua's Life Mean for Me as a Fellow Believer? Joshua was a man, right? He had to put on his pants one leg at a time. Maybe he, put his, maybe he put his robe on more quickly. I don't know. He was a man like you and I. He had to pull his sword out. He had to deal with life. And he made it to the end as a faithful man. How can I make it like him to the end? You could preach three different sermons all from the exact same text. Joshua's chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, the whole way to chapter 24. You could preach chapters 1 to 24 three Sundays in a row with three different messages that do not contradict and all build up the saints by examining the narrative from three different perspectives. And in that sense, you would not be teaching three different messages, but you would be teaching one message as if you're in an airplane flying over and you look down and everything is so small. The next message is as if you're driving through the town on a car and you see some buildings quickly. And the third message is as if you walked in and stopped at the man's house and had lunch with him. Do those three things, what if you flew in an airplane over Louis Treacart? Would you know something about me? If everyone told you Seth lives in Louis Treacart, and, and, and you flew over and you looked down and said, oh, that's his house down there. Or if you drove down the road and said, there, 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 there it is on the corner. Or number three, if you came and had lunch with me. In each time, you would learn something about Louis Tricard and something about Seth. The first time, it would be not very much about Seth and a lot about the surrounding area. The second time, when you drive your car by, you'd learn a little bit more about Seth. See some grass, some trees, a a sign, the fence. See a few things. Okay, he's got a house, he's got two cars. Okay, got some kids playing out front. But I still didn't learn very much. The third time you would learn a lot about Seth and very little about Louis Tricart. But none of those messages contradict. And all of those messages might be very important for a believer at a particular time in life. So ask questions whenever you read the narratives or preach from the narratives. Here are some unique questions to ask about the narratives. Number one, what does this passage teach about God? Number two, what does this passage teach about the nature of man? Number three, what does this passage say about redemption? Number four, is this passage a bad example or a good example? Number five, does the New Testament ever talk about this passage? Of those five questions, which of those five do you think are the most helpful 
to a preacher. I'm putting you on the spot. Which of those five do you think are the most helpful for a preacher? Yeah, definitely. The first one, what does this passage teach about God? And the second one that's the most helpful? The second second question, what does this passage teach about man? I wish I could somehow help all preachers to read the, the histories of the Bible, the narratives, and ask themselves every time, what is this saying about the God that I serve? What does this say about the man that I am and the men that I have to deal with? There is enough in there to keep people interested and to save their souls from hell. The other questions are helpful. You can use them and should use them. But those first two, I've used those for many years and they've been very profitable. Now, because there's so many stories and so many different themes, it's very easy to do bad preaching from narratives. Why would that be so? Because you can find bad examples in the narratives. And someone who has bad logic and someone who is a bad reader, what will he do with the bad example? He'll take the bad example and say that it is a good example. Give me an example. That's it. David had many wives. There's many other examples like that. David had many wives. Therefore, we should have many wives. Or we may have many wives. The, old, the Israelites were not allowed to eat chicken. The law. The, the Israelites could not eat pork, so we can't eat pork. Yeah, the Old Testament law is filled with examples that are abused today. And then all the examples in the Old Testament, when the Bible says God made Abraham rich, then people today say, God wants you to be rich. God wants me to be rich. Yes, there are many good, exam- good bad examples of the ways that the Bible is twisted in the Old Testament. And it almost always comes from eisegesis. That is, a man starts with the idea that he wants to say, And then he finds a passage that will help him say it. Guard yourselves against that. Category number three. Genre number three. Parables. Parables are a literary device. It's a tool. It's a story. And these stories are used to do what? Hide the truth And reveal the truth. And the beauty of a parable is that it can do both at the same time in the same group of people listening. The power of the parable is that when Jesus preached in Matthew 13, he can give the wheat and the tares. And the disciples are cut by it even though they don't fully understand it. And the other people are angered by it, even though they don't fully understand it. And Jesus hid portions that he did not want to give. He said, I can't give these diamonds to those dogs, those pigs. But I want to give this bread to those children. And at the same time, in the same sermon, he gave bread to children and he refused to give diamonds to pigs. To the same audience, to a mixed group in the audience, because parables have the power to do that. Matthew 13, verses 11 to 15, is Jesus giving an exposition of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, when Isaiah says he has chosen to hide these things from some and to reveal them to others. And Jesus says that time in Isaiah, he was talking about me. When I come and preach in parables. When Jesus gave metaphors, are those the same as a parable? Look at uh, letter A, number two. I am the vine. Is that a parable? No. 
Why not? Because a parable um, proceed uh, um, effect like something will be said uh, before the parable to say that truth in a, in, a, in a different way. Okay, let me give you the. I'm going to give you the these two. I'm going to give you the prodigal son, and then I'm the vine. And you tell me if there's a difference in the substance. There was a boy. He wanted his father's money. He took it and wasted it, insulting his father, laughing at him. Suddenly, he was humbled. He was shocked and hurt. He wept, and he came humbly back to his father, and his father received him in love. Next, there's a vine. It's growing. It has branches. What's the difference in those two? I think the one wants to tell a story through something, and the other one is to say, I'm a vine. It's just that it doesn't mean I'm a vine, but it can use you like a vine. Exactly. The one has what we call a plot. A plot is when a hero finds a problem and then overcomes the problem. That's a plot. So what's the plot in the good Samaria, uh, the, the, the prodigal son? Here's the problem. The boy has a big selfish heart. And he overcomes the selfish heart. And he comes back to his father. That's the plot. The boy's got a bad heart and he overcomes it. Now, what about what's the plot in I am the vine? There is no plot. It's a metaphor. Do you see that tree? I'm like that. And you, you're like that. What about this? In Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, Jesus tells the story of the time that Pilate executed people in Judea. And he said, Pilate, he saw those men over there were living in a bad and wicked way. And so Pilate executed them. Is there a plot? Yes. The king looks out and sees criminals and kills them. There's the plot. Is that a parable? No, because it really happened. It was, it was a, it's a true story. The Bible tells other true stories. And when it tells true stories, it's not a parable. When Jesus in John chapter 6 tells about Moses offering manna to the children of Israel, that's not a? So a parable is a story that's, that's fictional. So the Lord Jesus used fiction. The parable is fiction that Jesus invented in order to bring the truth home to their hearts. And they're very powerful. Parables have all the elements of a story and they correspond to real life. A solid definition of a parable is an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. But parables only have one truth. I have a book on my shelf called Govet on the Parables. Govet is a, was a preacher in the time of Spurgeon, and Robert Govet taught on the parables. And Govet said that every detail in the parables means something. And the reason every parable means something is Jesus was the master teacher. And because he's the master teacher, he's not going to leave anything to chance Everything has an important meaning. Or, no, Jesus was just getting one main point across. Which is it? Well, the answer is he's just getting one main point across. I believe Pastor Govet is wrong at this point. Not every detail of the parable matters. For example, there's a parable of the unjust judge, where a wicked judge is cruelly treating a widow. And that widow 
is like the believer. And who is the unjust judge a picture of? Well, if every detail means something, then you've got a problem with your theology, don't you? Yeah, there's a big problem. And what about this? Have we forgotten the most important thing? If every detail of a parable means something, then what about this? Who is the father in the, in the uh, prodigal son? Who's the father? It's God. But if every detail means something, then in the story of the prodigal son, did that father have a birthday? Yes. Was he going to die someday? Does God the Father have either of those things? No, it's obvious as we read the parables that if you try to make every detail match up, you come to foolishness. For example, the the ten virgins, five wise and five foolish. And this is the one that Govet takes and says, every detail means something. Oh, really? Then why are there only women? Are there going to be no men in heaven? Are there no men who are fake Christians? The five foolish virgins, they're all female. Are there any fake Christians who are male? No, every detail does not mean something. There's one great point. Sometimes the details mean something, but you have to always ask yourself, is this clearly evident or am I stretching? Parables have one central truth. Uh, Notice poetry. Number four, there are some poems in the New Testament, but mostly poems and poetry are in the Old Testament. Hebrew poetry uses short lines. It rhymes ideas, not words. So instead of saying roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. Instead of saying blue, you, it's going to rhyme the ideas. Like saying, a soft answer turns away anger. But grievous words, harsh words, stir up anger. We just rhymed anger and anger at the end of each line. And the Proverbs are very easy to see this way. The Proverbs will commonly compare the same thing in two lines with different words Or they'll contrast it. The first word will be a positive and the next line will be a negative. That's the way the Hebrew poems rhyme. Poems are highly emotional, highly structured forms of communication. So there is overspeak or what we call hyperbole. Hyperbole is when you use words that are too strong in order to make the point. Many waters cannot quench love, Song of Solomon says. Highly emotional, picturesque. They're intended to go right into our souls and not merely the part of our mind that says, what's the answer to two plus two? Poems are meant to push right past that and go into your soul. If you're reading the book of Job correctly, you're supposed to be weeping with him and puzzled with him and Struggling, and you're supposed to be uncomfortable until you get to the end of the book. If you're not uncomfortable, if you're not even sympathetic, if you don't hurt a little bit, you're not a good reader. And all the poems are like that. If you're not delighted when you read the Song of Solomon, then you're not reading it right. You're supposed to be full of laughter and hope and wonder and mystery. That's what it's intended. And by the way, this was brought out to me. I don't, I don't remember who brought it out to me. I'm not sure where I came across this, but it's now a part of me. If you don't preach the feelings that are in that passage of Scripture, you have incorrectly preached that passage of Scripture. You must preach... The passion that is in that verse. And if you don't preach it, you're missing part of the point or the whole point. Because there are verses in the Bible where the whole point is passion. The whole point is love or fear or terror. Like this, kiss the son so that he is not angry. 
When you read that and you read that psalm, you are supposed to come away at the end saying, Oh, ah, ah. When you read the Psalms, if you don't have awe and wonder, fear and terror, tears, you have not read them, which is a problem for me because I'm trying to read a number of chapters in the Bible per day. And I came to Psalms and I started it. And after five days, I had to quit because I thought I'm dishonoring these Psalms. These Psalms deserve to be read slowly. I feel as if other books of the Bible, maybe you could read the whole book of Isaiah in one afternoon. Take it two or three hours and you read that book. But I feel like I'm dishonoring the Psalms because you can't rush into a love letter. You don't rush in and rush out and say, oh, I got the point. I'm done with it. You linger over those things. Poetry. The passion of the scriptures. Prophecy. Much of the Bible is prophecy. Prophecies that have already come true either in Christ or Israel. But there are still many future prophecies. Most of them having to do with the second coming or the millennium. When you read a prophetic passage, ask these questions. What are the meanings of key terms like Israel, Judah, peace, and rule? Number two, is this prophecy past or future? Has it already happened or not? Number three, is this prophecy conditional or unconditional? Number four, does this prophecy have a double fulfillment? Number five, does the New Testament reference this prophecy anywhere? If so, what does it say when it references it? Those are the genres of scripture. Prophecy, poetry, parable, epistle, history. You can add to that law. You can add others to that. You could say law. Some people put apocalyptic. That seems to be more of a, an amillennial attempt to separate revelation and allow it to already be fulfilled in the past. Um, I'm, not, I'm not so sure that apocalyptic, apocalyptic deserves its own genre. Um, some people argue for that. I don't see it necessarily. So I'll just put revelation into prophecy. And I'm putting law here into narrative. But if you want to put law as its own genre, you can do that too. The point is, when you read the Bible, notice that there are different categories. And read with your eyes open so that you can understand them. Are there any questions?